Welcome to the Development Policy Centre podcast. I'm Ashley Betteridge. The Australian Volunteers for International Development Program is how many Australians gain their first experience in the aid and development field. The recent evaluation of the program by the Office of Development Effectiveness, or ODE, at DFAT provided much go for discussion at our 2014 evaluation forum. The podcast includes opening remarks from Deaf Policy Stephen Howes and ODE's Derek Rukin-Smith, a presentation on the volunteers' evaluation and discussion from DFAT representatives, Dev Policy and the audience. All right, well, uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, we might make a start right on 9.30. It's good to see so many people here on time. Uh, thank you all for coming, and let's begin by acknowledging the first Australians on whose land we meet and by paying our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. Uh, thanks, everyone, for coming. This is our third uh, forum on ODE evaluations. We started two years ago, and we, had, uh, we discussed uh, the evaluations on the Philippines and on civil society. And then last year, we had to have it in private because of the uh, caretaker period. We weren't able to make it a public event, but we did. Uh, Derek nevertheless kindly came across, and we had some colleagues. We used the same sort of format, but just for my aid and development students. Um, but that was also it was obviously useful for them, and um, I got them to do a review of either the the two one of the two evaluations we discussed at that forum, which were the HIV/AIDS and the Law and Justice evaluation. And then um, I invited the best students to um, convert their essays into blogs. And this, you know, the, this forum has then uh, kind of prompted me to get that done. So the two uh, blogs have come up this week, one on law and justice, one on uh, HIV-AIDS. And uh, then this is the third one uh, in that series. And uh, I want to start by uh, you know, thanking Derek uh, as the head of the ODE for... Um, you know, not only being willing to participate in these events, but in fact he suggested we do it again. And I uh, appreciate that. I know we're not uh, always kind to ODE in what we say in public. Sometimes we complain about the evaluations being delayed or we complain about the quality. So we, I'm sure we're annoying at times. But, you know, we are, obviously we're believers, not just friends, but we're believers in uh, aid evaluation and in ODE. And, uh, you know, we see the role of these four uh, is really to give more strength uh, to the evaluations, right? It's to work on the demand side. It does, um, you know, surprise and disappoint me that the ODE evaluations don't get more public discussion. You know, when you think about the topics they discuss, they're ones that are really central to the aid community, which is a very large community. If you think about topics like HIV, AIDS and PNG or volunteering, there are lots of people working on those. But uh, for whatever reason, they don't get a lot of discussion, and uh, this forum is uh, one way that we can do our bit in promoting that kind of discussion. So the, uh, the format for these is uh, pretty simple. The main events are the uh, reports that we discuss, and um, we have a presentation by you know, one of the authors, or the lead author, or, or a main author of the report. Um, then we have a response uh, from someone in... Uh, DFAT, and that's sort of the government response to the evaluation. I think in the second one, we might be missing that, or it might be a bit... I think Andrew Collins can't make it. Um, but anyway, that's the idea. And then the third is uh, to have a sort of independent voice. And um, 
you know, the, that, that's meant, the discussion is meant to be both about the evaluation right, and about the response to the evaluation. Right? They, they're both the concerns. Uh, both of those are the concerns of this forum. We want to see good evaluations uh, adequately responded to. So those are the two uh, main events for today, separated by morning tea. Uh, but uh, to, at the start and the end, uh, well, you just heard from me, uh, but now I'm going to hand over to Derek, uh, who's going to talk a bit about ODE and uh, where things sit with ODE. I think we're all glad that ODE survived the integration. It hasn't been such a deep integration that ODE's disappeared. So that's good, but uh, I'm sure there are lots of changes that it would be good to know about. And then right at the end, we're going to hear from Jim Adams. So I'd also like to welcome you, Jim. As uh, Jim, as I'm sure you all know, is the chair of the Independent Evaluation Committee. So none of your colleagues are here from the committee. Wendy might come later. Wendy might come. Anyway, we're very glad to have you and uh, appreciate the interest uh, that the committee's uh, showing. Uh, And uh, so uh, we're going to invite Jim to sort of wrap up uh, at the end of the session. but that's, uh, that's all for me, and uh, to save me having to get up again, I'll just mention that Julia Newton-Howes has kindly agreed uh, to chair the first session, so after Derek, we'll hand over to Julia. And if you have any volunteers to chair the second session, please see me at the tea break. All right, Derek. Thanks a lot, Stephen. Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Yeah, and thank you all for coming this morning. I, for one, would have been very disappointed if nobody turned up. I just wanted to, um, I just wanted to start as well, just as a matter of interest. Um, how many of you have been AVID or IAD volunteers? Okay. How many of you participated in the survey that was attached to the AVID evaluation? Good. Oh, well, that's a few, a few fewer. I was, was going to say, you know, we might have a, a, a sort of a representative sample here, which typically would be um, lots of women and uh, no old people. Now, I'm assuming the old people were volunteers a long time ago, <laughs> or maybe more recently. Let's hear about that, more about that later. Look, I, I know you, this is a very interesting topic, and with a lot of you, it's quite close to... Uh, to your own personal experiences. Um, I'm looking forward to an interesting discussion on that. Um, I just want to say a few things, first of all, uh, that if you think the the subjects we're talking about today are interesting, uh, we've got a lot more coming up in the near future, hopefully. Yesterday we had a very productive IEC meeting, and um, Stephen's already mentioned that Jim's with us today. That's one of the reasons we had the meeting today. But yesterday uh, we uh, discussed with the IEC a number of evaluations which are coming to conclusion and we hope to have them out in the not-too-distant future. There's an excellent one on our aid program to Timor-Leste over the last 10 years. Uh, a very interesting, which I should say just confirms how difficult it is working in a post-conflict environment. Uh, a very interesting one on Australia's response to the Horn of Africa famine. For me, one of the interesting things out of that was the new and quite interesting use of cash transfers rather than in-kind food uh, in those sorts of situations, which seems to work well. Uh, We have a very interesting one on operational evaluations I'll come back to in a minute. And uh, another one that I'm sure you'll be interested in, which is um, economic empowerment, women's economic empowerment. 
So that's just a smattering of what's coming up in hopefully the next, uh, the next couple of months. Um, what I wanted to use my time at this introduction for was just to give uh, you, I know some of you wouldn't be particularly interested, but those who closely follow what's going on in Canberra at the moment, uh, just some, a bit of an update on where ODE uh, sits in the current uh, restructuring of uh, the Department of Foreign <coughs> Affairs and Trade, the amalgamation with AusAid. As I'm sure you know, there's a lot of exciting things that happened over the last few months. I want to break that, those comments up into uh, issues around governance uh, of ODE, structure of ODE, and our forward work plan. So first of all, governance, obviously, the position of Director General Ozade has been abolished, and the desk, the Development Effectiveness Steering Committee, has been abolished. So that left the governance around ODE uh, a little ambiguous. It's been clarified now. Uh, some of you will know, I, as the head of ODE, report directly to a Deputy Secretary in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Jim is Chairman of the uh, Independent Evaluation Committee reports directly to the Secretary. The role of the desk in in, uh, approving our work plan going forward has now been taken over by the uh, senior executive of DFAT, chaired by the Secretary. So that's the the, uh, current uh, governance arrangements, and I won't bore you with some of the internal uh, management arrangements around that that we are introducing to help ensure a reasonably quick turnaround to the management responses to our evaluations. (coughs) Talking about structure, I want to digress very briefly to this uh, reference I made to the operational operational evaluations evaluation. We in ODE like to think that we're the purveyors of uh, fine evaluations of a high standard, but I really like to remind people that we are not the be-all and end-all of evaluations in the department. In 2012, there were 87 independent evaluations conducted by the operational areas. Now, we try to differentiate those by calling them operational evaluations that commissioned, managed, and responded to by the operational areas. Last year, we undertook a survey, study, meta-analysis, and meta-evaluation of those 87 evaluations. The report that comes out of that is actually very interesting because it gives more of a highlight to some of the activities going on in the department over and above ODE. Um, The first part confirms that most of the evaluations are of a reasonable quality, such that we can use the data findings and uh, recommendations with some confidence. And the second part of that uh, work draws together a lot of the lessons learnt from operational evaluations under a whole range of themes. So in some ways it's a little bit of a, I wouldn't say a mini-la, Lessons from Australian Aid, about which we'll talk this morning, but it certainly complements the work that we're doing. The point of, uh, that I'm trying to, uh, uh, would like to emphasise, and you won't see it until you read the document, it already has had an impact within the department in terms of workload and structure. One of the recommendations of that report was that the fracturing of evaluations across the department uh, needed to be addressed. There's an argument for centralising a central database on independent evaluations. So as part of the, if you like, the management response to the operational evaluations uh, exercise, we've had a small unit move from the old PDP division, now called ACD division, which I can't remember what it stands for, but they have come to join ODE 
with a particular view of helping, oops, coordinating our help in ODE to people within the department who are commissioning independent evaluations and hopefully establishing a database that will make all independent evaluations in the department much more accessible to the public. As you will know, all independent evaluations, regardless of whether they're ODE or operational, should be published. And the Minister has confirmed under her new guidelines on uh, publication policy that that needs to be done. So we do hope, I, I can admit now, that the actual uh, rate of publication for, for operational evaluations is at around 50%. We want to lift that. We'll have a role in sort of uh, trying to ensure that that happens and a role in eventually giving you, the students, public, whoever's interested, a much easier user experience, a one-stop shop, if you like, to access all independent evaluations uh, in the department. Along with that comes, as I say, a bit of a task in terms of helping, providing a bit of a, 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 help, a help desk to uh, the, the operational areas and in conducting evaluations. So focus there on lifting the quality uh, of evaluations generally. In the end, we are moving towards uh, the recommendations from the independent review that we should do fewer, better evaluations. We're not totally there yet, but I think it's, uh, it's a move in the right direction. Quick one on, on our own workload. I mean, besides what I've just mentioned about the operational evaluation section, moving into ODE, you would have heard a lot of you, and you might have been involved in the consultations over benchmarks and uh, targets in the new reporting regime for the aid program under the new government. Um, all I want to say there is that that's a work in progress. I might say a few words after the uh, discussion on the evaluation of APPRs, um, because uh, unfortunately Andrew Collins can't be here today, but if you read the management response to the review of APPRs, it in effect says, yeah, yeah, that's all very interesting, we'll take that into account as we develop a new reporting framework. So that's a work in progress. Uh, we would expect certainly that that would be more uh, finalised and clear around about the time of the budget. And this is conjecture on my part, but I do think there might well be a role for ODE in the future to verify and analyse the underlying data for reporting against the new results framework. We didn't do that under the old CAPF, um, but for various reasons this could well become a reality going forward, mainly because, again, if I understand it correctly, a lot of that performance data will be embedded into APPRs, which we, by nature, uh, do work on in terms of verifying their, their content. So, you know, quite a bit's been happening with ODE. In terms of the evaluation culture, if you like, of the new <coughs> unified department, again, uh, speaking really just from a, a personal point of view, it's hard to say. I mean, it's early days. I mean, I, I um, am still getting a feel for what the appetite for evaluations in the new Butte Department is, uh, you know, recognition of their value, both as a management tool and as an important aspect of uh, development effectiveness. Having said that, I do know the Minister is very keen on this work. She's reiterated the importance of transparency and publication of independent evaluations. But more importantly, speaking as a consummate bureaucrat, 
we still have a decent budget and we, I still have all my staff, which is more than can be said for lots of parts of the old AusAid. So I think that's a good indication. Uh, we're off to a good start. Um, I might eat my words in a few months when the budget's <laughs> announced, but, <laughs> but uh, look, you know, I, th I think we, we are off to a good start. And as I keep saying to my team in ODE, there's a lot of goodwill to ODE out there. It requires us to deliver good, good product. I think we have so far, and uh, um, as I say, I'm very happy to talk about the, uh, the evaluations today. Others will, will do so as well. Uh, and going forward, I'm very um, excited about some of the, uh, the product that we'll be bringing out in the next couple of months. But just going back to Stephen's point in the introduction, uh, a lot of evaluation, well, John Olson from University of Melbourne, very famous evaluator in Australia, I liked his, his saying, which is an evaluation is a negotiated event from start to finish. And now that I've been involved in evaluations over the last three years, I think nothing could be truer. But also evaluation is very much around contestability all the way through the actual evaluation and afterwards once the results become public. And as Stephen said, this is part of that process. I'm very pleased to see we have a decent turnout, that people have, I hope, read the evaluations. Uh, and yeah, we, you know, this whole contestability side is an important part of refining our game and making sure that we, uh, we deliver good product in the future. So with those a few words just about ODE and how we sit in the new... Uh, restructured Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Um, I look forward to hearing uh, the discussion on our AVID evaluation to start off with, with Julia, kindly co-chairing. Thanks very much, uh, Derek. And it is good to see such a good turnout. I think um, evaluations, as you've so um, aptly pointed out are a critical way in which we all learn. My name's Julia Newtonhouse. I'm the Chief Executive of Care Australia. And I thought I was just coming along to be a member of the <laughs> audience. Um, but I've been roped into chairing this session, which I'm very happy to do. Um, the AVID program uh, is, has been uh, go ongoing for a number of years, but in, under different names for a long time. And I would say that Care Australia regularly has volunteers um, from different programs as part of our program, but we, uh, you know, the different programs we're running in different countries. So I'm looking very much looking forward to the outcome, um, to hearing the debate around uh, this evaluation. So let me invite the panel to come up uh, and sit here. And we have three presenters, starting off um, with Andrew Hawkins, who will come and he was the key author of this uh, report. But why don't I invite all this? Oh, no, you won't be able to see the presentations. So um, <laughs> Andrew um, will be followed by Gary Powell, um, who will give the management response. Uh, Gary's Assistant Secretary, NGOs and Volunteers branch. And then comments from... Uh, Professor Stephen Howes, Director of the Development Policy Centre um, from the ANU. And then we've got plenty of time, if our speakers stick to their allocated schedule time, we'll have plenty of time for a, Q a really good Q&A session. So please do, um, do uh, think of your questions as we go through these presentations. So Andrew, if I can invite you up first. 
Okay. All right, thank you very much. All right, well, thank you everyone for coming. Um, I'd really like to thank um, ANU for having me here today and for hosting the presentation. It's really great that you do this sort of thing. I'd also really just like to start off thanking Derek uh, and the Minister uh, and Jim and all those involved in setting up such a great process around evaluations. Very few government departments have this level of commitment to doing evaluation, publishing evaluation, inviting critique, peer review. Really great stuff and I think it's really good that you do it and I wish more departments was doing that sort of work. Um, I'd also like to thank Debbie and Kelly, who are instrumental parts of the evaluation that we did. We, I'm from ARTD Consultants. We worked together, and David as well, who's in the audience. Um, and we did, they travelled with us and did some of the field work as well. So it was a real team effort getting this work together. That said, it was still independent in that everything that we wrote was something that we were happy as the independent um, consultants to put in the report. So just really briefly, a bit of background to AVID. Um, launched May 2011. It's a pretty small percentage of the budget, but a very visible part of the, of the development presence. Uh, it's managed as a global program um, by DFAT volunteers section, and it's managed, uh, delivered by three core partners uh, in the different countries where it, where it operates. Um, when we did the evaluation, uh, these are the locations where the volunteers were present. I did go back and look, and there were six actually in Peru as well, which didn't make it onto this map. And they are sometimes other parts of the world as well. But at the time, that you can see very much concentrated in Asia and Southeast Asia and the Pacific. Okay, so what was the purpose of the evaluation? You know, every, every evaluation is different. Uh, our particular purpose was really looking at enhancing the effectiveness of Abbott uh, and the contribution that volunteers make to development efforts. We had four lines of inquiry and we had about 20 evaluation questions. So if you look at the final report, you will see answers to every question and, and the report structured along the different lines of inquiry. Um, and there are different objectives as well. But kind of the first thing before we get to that is, well, that's the purpose of the evaluation. The first thing, well, what's the purpose of the program that we are evaluating? And that was one of the first sort of stumbling blocks for us when we started the evaluation was here's this program sending volunteers, what are the objective and purposes? And one of the, the things, we came across a range of different documents that talked about different parts of the program who slightly talked about the objectives of the volunteer program, slightly different. They were always consistent with each other but some emphasised one part of the program or one objective or one beneficiary a bit more than the other. Uh, so we did a bit of work at the beginning. As many of you will be aware with evaluation, often an approach to evaluation is to start with the program logic and to, to sketch out what is the logic behind this program, what is the rationale. And we felt that it was relatively a simple program in some ways. So the first thing, of course, was ensuring that the policy settings were right, there were partnerships in place with the core partners so it could be delivered. Then we thought, well, there's two sort of streams really here. There's the host organisations that are going to take the volunteers and there's the volunteers themselves. They're kind of a key aspect of, of the overall program logic. So the host organisations need to be ready to take a volunteer. Volunteers needed to be suitable and prepared for what they were going to do. Then they needed to be established in appropriate placements. And there's far more to this than I can go over in such a short presentation. In a very simplistic program logic worldview, the rest of the world doesn't matter and therefore the assignment is effective. Of course there are other contextual factors that we can talk about later. This outcome then is where we saw the main game. Uh, and you can see that little target thing just flew in there because this is the one that we thought was, was really important when we looked at the literature about what was written about volunteer programs. There wasn't a lot written about what does it actually do for the host organisation. So we thought good evaluation should try and fill the gaps as well in the, in the knowledge base. 
So that was the main reason that we sort of took quite a focus on how does these help, how do these volunteers help develop the capacity of organisations. Um, obviously there are also outcomes for public diplomacy if, if, um, if host organisations are, are happy and that message is getting out into their community. If the host organisation benefits, well then the host organisation in theory makes improved contributions to their own country's development. From the volunteer side of things, if the, if the placement was effective, well then the volunteers should get some personal and professional development out of having done that work and then they contribute to advocacy for the aid program when they return to Australia as well amongst other things so there's a bit more public diplomacy outcome there and ultimately if all of these things are happening then you're getting development effectiveness and you're getting public diplomacy benefits as well out of the program so that's our simplified program logic that's what we developed for the evaluation it's not the be all and end all there are other ways of looking at it a program logic is just something that's used for a purpose. And this so when we looked at the program logic with that target area, we thought this is one area, when we look in the literature and we look at the program, this seems really important. So in terms of the methods that we used, um, there was a literature review, as I said. We focused in three countries, uh, Cambodia, Vietnam, and the Solomon Islands. The reason we chose those three countries was it was a pretty, they took a pretty large number of the volunteers all over. They were mature programs, they had a lot of activity, the core partners were there. So they provided a very rich source of information for us to enhance, to do an evaluation whose purpose was to enhance the effectiveness of the program. Um, there was a survey of returned volunteers that was done by a separate company. Uh, we did a media analysis to look at the way that AVID's talked about in the media, as a, looking at that public diplomacy outcome. We had a bit of a look at recruitment data from each of the core partners to answer that question. Are they trying to game the system here? Are they sending the easy to send visits? or are they Easy to fill assignments? Have a look at that thing. And we found no evidence that there was anything other than a really solid recruitment process going on. And we talked with everyone as well. So the, in the field work, we did end up 123 interviews. Often we would sit down at a host organisation, we'd interview the host organisation, and then separately we'd interview the volunteer. We'd get two sides of the story. Uh, we interviewed a lot of other people in the countries as well, um, you know, DFAT reps and sometimes country representatives of the host government. Uh, we also did a survey and got a 49% response rate. That was all the, that was all the host organisations in those three countries uh, as well. And, there was, and the Orima survey ended up, uh, they, they surveyed 3,500 and they ended up with 38% of, of those responding. So it's quite a lot, of, a lot of data that was collected in the evaluation. Um, I'm just going to skip through some of the stuff and try and get to what I think would be most interesting to the audience, but one of the things is that the, the new AVID program had some shared standards, and, and everyone recognised that this was a great development. It wasn't perfect yet, but this was really helping drive um, the, a coordinated approach amongst the three core, core partners. And most importantly, as an, from an evaluation perspective, the process of developing and refining these was supported by everyone. Um, as I said earlier, we did find there's a bit of a difficulty at finding a, what was the single program vision for the program, the statement of objectives I've already said. Uh, and then there was these, there's two brands, AVID and AAD. And uh, when we looked at the objectives, as I said, they weren't in contradiction to each other. They, had, they tended to stress different parts of the program. But when we went through the evaluation and we talked to a lot of AADs and AVIDs, and we really struggled to find out any real substantial difference between the two. In fact, I do recall one interview where I asked someone who'd been both an AAD and an AVID, what's the difference? Why'd you choose this one? Uh, and the answer was, well, that was the one that was advertised. And what's the difference? The AAD program gave us a great first aid kit. <laughs> as far as her was concerned, that was the difference. The objectives were really very similar. And I guess while I'm on the point, I will we'll get to it in the next, next slide. Um, 
So one of the first questions was around, does the volunteer program align with uh, um, with Aussie, with DFATs and the country strategies? So mostly the assignments did. What is the right percentage? We don't know. Uh, it seemed like a reasonable percent. Obviously, different things happen uh, in terms of whether or not a host organisation is ready to take volunteers. Uh, one of the criticisms that we did make, though, was that posts weren't particularly involved with the volunteer program. They had some level of oversight and a, and a strong concern for volunteer welfare, but the level of engagement in how many volunteers they got, which organisations got them, which obviously is also partly an operational matter for the core partners, but we felt that there, was, there wasn't as much strategic involvement with the program as we, we would have liked to have felt there was. And once we looked at the program and developed our opinion about the kind of capacity work that some of these volunteers did, we thought that was probably a missed opportunity for some posts to, to access a very cost-effective resource. Um, so who are the volunteers? Now, I guess the main point I want to make here is there is a, a common misconception that volunteers are very young. And especially with the AAD program being under 30 as the age limit, people think very young, very inexperienced. In fact, 86% of AADs are age 26 to 30. Okay, so there's very few who are down at the just out of uni phase. This is because it's a competitive process to, to, be, to, to go for an assignment to become a volunteer. So of the people we talked to, there, many of them had three or four years' work experience as well as their, their uni education. There also is you know, one in five of a, sort of an older cohort. Um, generally, volunteers were very satisfied with the experience uh, and would recommend the program. That's not to say they weren't without their criticisms of the program. Uh, which we'll get to. Uh, some of the strongest parts of the program were around sort of the, the, the bits before they really got stuck into the assignment. So the <coughs> recruitment, the pre-departure training, the in-country orientation was universally agreed to by people as something that was a very useful process for them to, to start off and in, become involved in the country. However, uh, there was a substantial number that were dissatisfied uh, to a degree. Over, as we say, we can't forget their overall satisfaction with <coughs> the experience in the program. Um, but when, they were, when were they least satisfied? The volunteers were least satisfied when placed in unprepared, inefficient or unmotivated host organisations. Now, this was not a great number, but in our interviews, I think we interviewed 48 volunteers, and I'd say there's probably two that fit that, that criteria that had a, had a substantial problem with their host organisation. Um, in terms of doing the work that they do, let's not... I mean, these, these volunteers are generally very engaging, very articulate people when you meet them and you talk to them with some experience. But as you would probably all be aware, you know, development, capacity development is not an easy thing to do. Uh, so many of the volunteers did struggle with, once they got there, uh, how do I do this difficult thing called capacity development? Uh, so when we, looked, when we sort of looked at each assignment and saw it through that lens of um, capacity development, many of them weren't doing as much as they could. They felt if they had some more support around how to do that, um, they would be happy. But that's, let's turn to the host organisations for a minute. They were almost routinely very pleased to receive a volunteer. I guess it's not surprising. You get an extra resource in your organisation. But the things that stuck out, stuck out was, stood out was the way that they compared them to volunteers from other countries. And they were routinely referred to as more professional with a greater degree of expertise than volunteers coming from other countries. They were often, these adjectives that just came up, they were the, in order with the most common adjectives that people used to describe the volunteer that they had. And the, one of the things that stood out for volunteers was their ability to do grassroots capacity development. And this was with com comparison to the technical advisor who may come into an organisation and provide a great degree of knowledge. But what many of the host organisations said, well, a volunteer is not intimidating to our staff. 
Our volunteer is young, they're willing to learn the local language, they're willing to have lunch with us, they're willing to get involved, and people, they don't have 100 degrees after their name, they're not on a huge salary, they're volunteers. So a lot of the local staff felt more comfortable, and so that was one of the reasons why, one of the reasons, not only because they're cheaper, we saw it as a cost-effective form of, of capacity development. Just to note, one of the interesting things, we did find volunteers did some, perhaps overestimate uh, their importance to an organisation, but they often underestimated the actual impact that they had. They thought they didn't have much impact when they did, but they might have thought they were a bit more important than they, than they actually were. Now, this won't surprise anyone. Volunteer assignments rarely match the work expected by host organisations. And we'll come back to that again as well. We, we wrote, made some recommendations of way around, ways around that. So one thing that the counterpart model is kind of seems to be the default assumption. A volunteer goes over, works with the counterpart. We had a lot of problem with that model in the evaluation. We found at first it was quite rare in practice. In fact, about 10% of the assignments actually had a counterpart functioning. When it worked, it could work. We're not saying it's not effective, but it was a much higher risk strategy. Sometimes the uh, counterpart left before the volunteer arrived. Sometimes the host organisation never recruited the intended counterpart, so the volunteer turned up, no counterpart. Sometimes the counterpart really benefited, and that was great. That meant they could get a job at somewhere else, like the World Bank. So good for them, not so good for their host organisation, who lost someone that they were working with. Sometimes the counterpart thought, the experts now turned up, I can go home or go to my other job. You know, and that's not great for the organisation either. Sometimes the counterpart was extremely well qualified, extremely busy, and didn't really have time to work with the volunteer, leaving the volunteer a bit underutilised. So we felt that given the fact that the assignments were usually out of date by the time the volunteer arrived, one of the solutions around this was, was exploring the role the volunteer is going to play when they turn up at the organisation. When you look at uh, World Bank publications about um, employment, it's always about employing um, capacity. Um, the, the competency-based employment. Don't give them a task. I mean, that's, that's, that's just recruitment, right? We did see there was still benefit to having that assignment there. It gives something for the volunteer to hang on to, even if it's a bit out of date. But there's a bit of give and take there. So we thought that, that could steer a little away from that assumption that it's always going to be a counterpart on a particular assignment, because that was a fairly rare in reality. Um, most tokenized organisations were very satisfied. I mean, when we, what were they dissatisfied? Well, usually the length of time it took the volunteer to arrive, which is partly the reason why the assignment can be out of date. Um, their inability to lack, directly nominate their own one came up, and the lack of any long-term commitment. Because they say, how do you expect us to have a long-term strategy for capacity development of volunteers if we have no commitment to getting more volunteers? So um, we did some statistical analysis on satisfaction because we were a bit sceptical. Of course, they're going to be happy with the program. They're getting a free volunteer. So we wanted to unpack it a little bit more, do, do some factor analysis and some regression. And as we suspected, when they were satisfied, that was tied to getting a volunteer who immediately helped them do something uh, and also enhance the organisation's profile. That was always something that was important to a host organisation. Uh, and what they really valued was the ability of the volunteer to complete tasks by working as part of a team. Um, transferring skills to their counterparts was important, but working with a team was really important. So yes, they're delivering capacity. Was it always sustained? Not always. In many cases, it was. Were they helping, working to help organisations do capacity development? Very occasionally, and that was very difficult for, for organisations. There were very little evidence that there were any plans to do that. 
public diplomacy, we didn't access this a lot in the evaluation. We sort of reasoned if they, if they like the volunteer and they know the volunteer's Australian, then there's a public diplomacy benefit. But of course that transfer of knowledge and skills is important. The media analysis we did in Australia found no negative coverage of AVID, only a couple of articles about volunteerism, which incidentally recommended AVID. So that's a, a good outcome. But very few people overseas knew what AVID was. AAD, yep, got that. But the AVID brand was really not cutting through um, yet with people. So finally, one of the things we looked at was the monitoring and evaluation. And this is the area we were most critical of, of the program, which is really there's no sort of active performance management system at the program level or at the in-country implementation level. In, from an Aussie Canberra perspective, yes, there has been a lot of evaluation work done, um, this being the most recent. And so we think that's, again, as I said in line with what Derek and ODE is doing, a lot of good work happening in Canberra. At the implementation level, really the evaluation was the in-country manager thinking, will I send another volunteer to that organisation? Which is an important decision, but there's nothing about learning, about what have we done in this country, where should we go next? That learning part of evaluation was not really present. Uh, the, vol the monitoring activity in country was really focused on welfare, volunteers and security, which of course is important, but not performance. Um, and of course the core partners were using different um, methods. But anyway, that's one of our key recommendations. So, look, we really felt that overall the volunteers are making an effective contribution to the development objectives. I said at the beginning when we looked at the program logic that we focused on the host organisation capacity development as a, as, a, as a key thing because there wasn't so much known about it. Our conclusion at the end of the whole evaluation was this is probably the main game here because if you give host organisations a resource that improves their capacity, that then helps improve development goals. If you send a volunteer to an organisation who is... Um, is able to make the best use of it, the volunteer themselves will be happy. And that, we thought, that was one of the interesting findings. Volunteers didn't like, I guess it's not interesting in retrospect, but didn't want to be an organisation that didn't know how to use them. So if you were focusing on how can we make sure the volunteer is able to make a capacity development contribution, that keeps the host organisation happy and the volunteer happy as well. So just finally, we came up with, obviously so much more in the report, obviously, than we can cover today. So I encourage you to download the report and, and read it. I'll just quickly put up, these are seven recommendations that we made. I'll let Gary talk about exactly how AusAid's gone forward with those. But we did talk about the need to make a, a single program. We didn't see any justification for these different streams. They were mainly aiming at the same thing. The difference was the experience of the volunteer and how long they were there. And the objectives and processes and many of those things were very similar. Uh, we found that you know, it was spread a lot around the world and in some countries there was very few volunteers and we wondered, or rather, there were some questions around the efficiency of doing that, even though it wasn't a core aspect of the evaluation. Uh, we looked, obviously suggested that posts might want to use this resource in line with other things that they're doing for capacity development a bit more. Support networks for the volunteers, professionally mainly, but also some social support. Some volunteers were a little isolated. Really, for me, this is the kind of that main one. We feel that focusing on long-term capacity development is the main game. Achieves all the other objectives of the program. Um, the marketing of a single brand was obviously something uh, that we felt. Well, that's not the area of expertise, but that's something that um, DFAT could look at. And of course, which is in our area, a simplified performance monitoring system. We thought was the one missing main missing piece of the overall monitoring and evaluation report or pro, um, process was a very simple real-time monitoring system with a few key bits of data that different people at different levels of the organisation in Australia and overseas can access and find some data about how things are running. Okay, so we're happy to take questions afterwards, but at this point I'll just hand over to Gary.
Look, thank you everyone for coming to this. Uh, very timely. Um, it's, it's, I have to say, when I took on volunteers about eight or nine months ago, uh, when I heard there was an evaluation in place, I thought, terrific, you know, because as a long-standing bureaucrat uh, who've done a lot of implementation of weird and wonderful programs across the Commonwealth, uh, I knew this was a great opportunity because um, uh, I'm very much in favour of using evaluation and internal audit as vehicles for making sure we get really effective programs. So, so terrific timing for this, terrific timing for the government uh, going forward on this program. Um, and great opportunity to have an event like this. So thank you for organising that, Stephen. Acknowledge my colleague Derek, Jim, good to see you. Julia, and all my work colleagues as well, fantastic. Um, I, I hope I don't uh, repeat too much of the overview stuff around the AVID program, but it is important to understand some of the context of this program. Um, so I'll, just, I'll go on to just give a little bit of background and then get into how we're sort of starting to respond to the... Um, the evaluation recommendations, and I'm sure you're aware by now that the government's agreed to uh, the management response. And of course, the management response is the um, uh, we're, we're in agreement with all the recommendations, and we're at various phases of starting to implement those now. <coughs> and my notes here actually say just to remind you all, it's Harmony Day today. So Day? Harmony Day. Harmony. Hence the. So I just thought I'd mention that in passing. <laughs> <laughs> so when we have our question and answer session... I won't fight you on that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, look, we know uh, the program was launched in May 2011 and it really brought together four separate programs under the one, under the one banner. Uh, very broadly, we know what the, the opportunities were around this. Uh, key thing I want to emphasise, though, is that we work very closely with three partners in this program. So it's DFAT, the Australian Red Cross, Australian Volunteers International, Austrain International, and all organisations that have um, got very different cultures and history, different ways of doing business, been involved in volunteer programs from varying angles. Uh, so, so in itself, you need to understand that it's quite uh, an interesting program in terms of the actual delivery partners and what we're trying to do. So DFAT, of course, is stewardship of the funding. Uh, and here we have three major organisations who have varying shares of the volunteer allocations and funding, uh, which we have to manage their expectations and interests, and particularly take into consideration how we implement the management response going forward. I've got a great load of detail here about those organisations. I won't go through that right now. <coughs> um, look, 2012-13, just very quickly, the, the budget's $58.5 million, just about 1% of ODA. ODA. Uh, it's gone down a little bit this year, it's about 55.3 million. So again, that represents a very interesting, challenging time to actually implement changes when you're in a sort of a downsizing environment. And of course, we know the government's got a different set of policy priorities and that we need to align the recommendations around uh, those policy priorities going forward as well. So again, some very interesting challenges going forward. Um, the interesting thing about this program, which I, I've found particularly intriguing, is there are so many moving parts. So, you know, if you start at the absolute base of that, there's, you know, just over 1,800 volunteers in deployment at any one time now, so it's, it's been going up over the last few years. Uh, I think, in fact, this year we have nearly 2,000 being deployed at the moment. So that's a big... Uh, that's a lot of people to sort of look after across three organisations. <coughs> Uh, we're operating currently in 42 countries in 85% of the Asia-Pacific region. 
and I think there's a... I don't know whether the fact sheet's been circulated, but it's um, some things from it. So in that process of three partner organisations, 1,800, 2,000 volunteers, there's nearly 1,300 organisations involved who are host organisations, and 160 partner organisations across various types of categories of activity, self-evident, uh, and areas of work. Again, lots of moving parts to consider in getting this right and responding to the recommendations of the evaluation. <clears throat> um, again, uh, it's always nice to see an evaluation that says actually this program's pretty effective in making its contribution to what's going on. Um, and as, as a newcomer to the space, it was, it was good to read that. But what, in saying that, uh, that's, that means that the evaluation itself is a very useful tool for us going forward. And the recommendations are very meaningful things to then make adjustments to the program to make it even better. So we're really thrilled that ODE does this work. We're really thrilled the evaluation came out when it did at this time in the program's history because it's helped driving us, I guess, you know, when you head into a program where it's only been going, what, two years of a five-year sort of partnership, uh, this is really timely in getting it right, right in the middle of this partnership and helping us make decisions about going forward as well. <clears throat> as I've said, the Minister's agreed to DFAT's management response to the Report 7 recommendations. If there's any, been any delay about why we've had it out publicly, it's because the government, I guess, had to adjust itself to being in place, in power. This was sort of down the set of work priorities a little bit, but I have to say it's been one of the first things the Minister sort of agreed to straight up as a set of activities around a particular program. Now I'm going to the guts of it, eh? <clears throat> um, all right. Now, seven recommendations. For us, there are two, two really key ones. I guess three key ones at the moment that we have to get right. Um, you know, the point that uh, Andrew is making about um, the pro program logic uh, and objectives of the program really crucial. You know, it's been interesting myself coming into AusAid um, and now DFAT. Um, uh, two of the programs I've picked up, one was the ANCP, the Australian NGO Cooperation Program, and the Volunteers one. Both have had, these are really long, overall long-standing programs, obviously AVIDs and the new guys in the last four years or so. But both of them didn't have uh, a clear program logic. So it's been an interesting process uh, identifying that as an issue and then having to address that going forward. Um, we've already started work on the program logic. I mean, consultations commenced the middle of last year. Uh, so you can see very quickly that we're sort of onto this. And as the evaluation was being finalised, that we're trying to get clarity around this whole, whole area. Uh, and it's really important because, as you know, it provides the basis upon which we get the monitoring evaluation framework right going forward. So if this, you know, to give you a very practical uh, comment about how this plays out going forward, is this, this government's very, much, very strong on the performance benchmarking that Derek mentioned, trying to find a line of sight between the results we're achieving on the ground and the way funding is applied. Really important we get this stuff right. So there's clarity about the vision, the objectives, the outcomes we're trying to achieve, and then building on that, and we'll come to recommendation six or seven later, where we actually do something about the monitoring evaluation finally. <coughs> um, the retirement of the AAD brand is being progressed uh, relatively rapidly. Um, 
We intend that, so we've already started the process. We've, a, a clear part of this process is involving ourselves very closely with the, um, our partners. Uh, for us, Oz Training International has been the core partner around the AAD brand. Uh, we've worked very closely with them in the first instance and, of course, our other two partners in making sure that uh, the process of retiring the AAD brand is done as seamless and as um, smoothly as possible so that you know, all those players involved, other countries, host organisations, other stakeholders, our partners, young people out there, all understand that, yes, we're retiring the AAD brand, but it's not over for young people, that we do this as smoothly as possible. <clears throat> Forgive me for just checking my notes in case I'm, I'm sort of uh, picking bits out that are salient. Um, so in terms of the AADs going forward at the moment, the, the intention is that we'll have fully retired that brand by, well, uh, certainly 1 July 2014, but there are AADs already out there that are out doing assignments and being deployed, and that'll be completed by mid-next year. Uh, and again, in line with the whole process, uh, to to give effect to the um, uh, the management response, the whole evaluation by the middle of next year, effectively, with with some tweaks beyond that. <coughs> um, program efficiency. The report cites about I think 20 countries with 10 or less volunteers in 2012. Um, 2011-12, as I recall. Uh, we're actually in the process of currently negotiating what, negotiating what a different footprint will look like in conjunction with our partners and posts that reflects both the need to consolidate the global footprint in the program and create some efficiencies, but also reflects the government's priorities and are very much obviously focusing on the Asia-India-Pacific area. Uh, Likely areas of reduction will impact on Latin America and the Caribbean, uh, with no new volunteers proposed to be mobilised uh, with existing assignments, concluding by June 2015. So that's very clear at this point. The Middle East, to phasing out mobilisations over the 2014-15 period, with assignments likely to conclude by June 2015, in line with the other implementation recommendations. Uh, for Africa, a reduction in the number of AVID countries from 12 in 2013-14 to a smaller number by June 2015 in line with government priorities. And quite clearly this is an area of great sensitivity. We have obviously bilateral arrangements in place. We have uh, a lot of host organisations to think about, uh, a lot of expectations across the program about where people can be deployed and their interests and so on. Um, and I guess uh, as we go through this sort of iterative process with posts and our partners, we'll be going back to the Minister to just you know, do a bit of a check on where we're up to with the whole process. <clears throat> so a few, few challenges in, um, in consolidating the footprint. Um, the other, uh, I guess the other thing I'll just mention, uh, sort of linked to this, in, in looking at these sort of challenges, there's also, uh, you know, with the, with the change of government, we need to think very carefully in how we address economic diplomacy through this program. Uh, that's a key issue for us to consider in the management response going forward. Whilst it's not 
um, uh, you know, really alluded to in the evaluation, except through discussion about the percentage of volunteers in the private sector, uh, it's a factor that we're going to have to build into this as well. Um, uh, other considerations, I guess, around the footprint and consolidating the program are really about, and it's sort of linked to the youth issue as well, is very much how we target particular types of volunteers in the program as well. So that, you know, you heard earlier, for example, that, um, you know, there's a, the younger cohort tends to be in the higher age group and there's a, a group of young people at the bottom end that we, we may be missing out on. Of course, there's a tension about that, which is, I think, pretty self-evident. Um, there's, there's other issues that we need to consider in this as well, how we target people from regional or rural Australia. Uh, that, that seems to be a bit of an area that we may have some issues to address. And, of course, a long-standing issue about how we involve more Indigenous people in this um, process as well. Other... Cost efficiency issues are really big in this program. It's been going through a sort of a growth phase for a couple of years. Uh, I think it's seen pretty clearly that we're, we've, we're plateauing. In fact, we're probably heading a little bit the other way. Uh, I don't anticipate we're going to keep heading south. I think we've, we've sort of hit the top of the ceiling there in a sense. But I guess, you know, picking up some of the commentary in the um, evaluation is that we're going to have to look pretty carefully at... Uh, the arrangements in country, and, and we're doing that now with our partners. We've started a cost efficiency exercise with them last year, which is really proceeding very nicely. Um, you know, I think um, the evaluation itself itself uh, points to, you know, for example, three partners operating in three countries together. Well, you know, you've got to ask yourself, are there some synergies around that, that way of operating? There are two partners operating together, for example, in 13 countries. You know, are there synergies around that we need to, to look at? Um, you know, there's been a, a touch-up on um, pre-departure briefings and have we got that right? You know, there's all sorts of activities across the partner organisations. Uh, are there ways of getting efficiencies around that? Are there issues around co-location co of offices? So we're, we're doing a pretty deep examination with our partners about what that looks like so that this program gets on a really solid footing in terms of efficiencies and the, uh, the way it's streamlined. <clears throat> um, very important factor in this is uh, that we... Uh, it seems to me historically the program's been very supply-driven, so, you know, a central sort of command and control approach is my way of putting it, that we're, uh, you know, a lot of it's been driven from Canberra trying to re reach particular targets. I guess for us what's really important is that we're hearing very carefully what posts are, uh, are saying to us about what the priorities are in country and that we get a better alignment around that. So we get a better push-pull effect, if you like, or a, or a demand-supply effect. Um, so we've already started this process with our posts and partners. This is about... Uh, you know, improving these processes so we get a better alignment between the assignments <coughs> and the that's being done and what posts are after as well. And lining that up with the intelligence that comes from our partners, uh, getting better communications around that. <coughs> Indeed, a DFAT survey post in October last year showed that we have improved post engagement and program planning but still have a bit of a way to go. Uh, posts have messaged a need for greater clarity in their roles and responsibilities. Uh, this includes better definition between program stakeholders, including DFAT Canberra, DFAT Post, 
Australia-based core partner management and in-country uh, managers of the partners as well. And of course, with the integration process that DFAT's going through at the moment, we also have an alignment issue around um, uh, around um, some of our posts with uh, DFAT staff, who are ex-Ausaid staff and, and uh, existing DFAT staff. So clearly there's a defining role that we need to get right there. <coughs> Just been given a bit of a prompt, so I'll move along a bit. Uh, yeah, sorry, in-country networks. Um, look... I won't, I won't banter on too much about this, but I guess um, uh, it's been pretty evident to me in my sort of, uh, you know, when I go to pre-departure briefings and hear from new volunteers and long-standing volunteers who come again, that this issue of networking, um, both for volunteers and building their capacity and seeing them go forward, is really critical that we don't leave volunteers, volunteers in an isolated situation. I think uh, you know, it's pretty obvious that the evaluation highlighted the issue of expectations of volunteers and seeing them in a particular, seeing themselves in a particular light before, before they go out and then confronting a bit of reality where they sit in the world when they get there. Really important issue that networking and support and proper training provides in this. Um, I also think in terms of host organisations that there's a lot to do to try and get better synergies between those 1,290 host organisations. Some posts do it really well, some just aren't in the game. So we have to get that right. Um, I have to say that's not the immediate piece of work that we have to focus on. It's the architecture that we've got to get right initially. Um, capacity development. I, look, uh, I just want to make a couple of very quick comments here because I'm conscious of the time. Um, really, really important that we get this right because... Um, and and to, part of getting this right is to get the architecture right around the objectives and vision of the program, what the outcomes are we're trying to achieve. But also then, having done that, get the monitoring evaluation framework right, uh, but also put in place the architecture and things we need to provide uh, better capacity building. So the arrangements, for example, between partner organisations and host organisations what those arrangements are, plans between them, agreements between them. Multi-year funding, big issue. Uh, at the moment, this program operates on a year-to-year -year basis. I mean, how can we continue with that? Clearly, that's an issue we've got to address. Flexibility across the program uh, will help build capacity as well so that people are able to, or partners probably are able to, look at the way in which they can deploy people across regions, not just in particular countries. These are all issues that will contribute to, or all strategies that will contribute to um, us addressing uh, capacity development. Um, the marketing promotion of the AVID brand, um, I, I guess you know, the key first step there is that we're retiring the AAD brand, so that's pretty self-evident. Um, we're also seeking some expert advice on options for better promoting and marketing the volunteers program. Uh, so we'll seek to do that once we're very clear, again, sequencing what we're doing, once we're very clear about the objectives and program logic. So once we're clear about what this program is trying to achieve and the architecture supporting that, then you can actually go out and work out what exactly is the brand we're trying to sell with and be clear about the messaging around that. Uh, clearly we'll be seeking the Minister's views in that process uh, because you know recognition of the Australian brand overseas is a very big priority for this government, no question. One minute to go, that's great. Um, and look, uh, this is great. This is a really 
key priority for us. Uh, it's key priority has been a key priority in ANCP. Um, and of course it's linked to that first recommendation about a single statement of objectives and program logic. So we're in a very um, pretty advanced state in terms of clarifying these objectives. Uh, we're making good progress on monitoring and evaluation. We're working very closely with our core partners at the moment to strengthen understanding of defect quality and performance standards and reporting requirements. We've engaged a specialist m and consultant. We're issuing someone here. <laughs> Um, to redesign the AVID M&E framework so it's consistent with DFAT performance and quality standards. We've completed a stock take of AVID M&E activities, identified overlaps and gaps as a way to prioritise reform. We've revised the 12-13 core partner reporting requirements to achieve consistency and higher quality performance information. Developed an AVID database to provide AVID-wide volunteer and assignment demographic, demographic, demographic information. Um, and core partners doing stuff as well, developing and rolling out online volunteer reporting systems. Uh, strengthening host organisation assignment development and feedback mechanisms. Again, you know, as Andrew highlighted, it's been a sort of, uh, I guess, something that's really been needed in the program is a better feedback or learning loop through this program. Um, so this is a bit of space that we're well advanced in and uh, intention to have the draft framework in place by the 30th of June, so we're moving quite quickly on this. Very quickly, actually. And um, uh, building into that framework, just apart from data collection, you know, that feedback loop makes it much more meaningful. Um, I just want to just touch on very quickly, I'll take one more minute, that's just saying that's time out, so I'm going to take one more minute. That's pretty good. Um, just really important about understanding the way we take this forward. As I mentioned, and I, I, I deliberately did this at the front end of this, I talked about our three partners. We are four partners together doing this program and delivering the changes around this. We, we regularly meet the partners through what we call a partnership group, so it's the CEO, CEOs of the organisation. Uh, that's not the partnership group there, by the way. That's just a good fun photo. Um, and it's underpinned by a working group looking at the program management activities. Uh, and, and we sat down together in December last year and we looked at what was coming through the evaluation, all the other activities in the program, and we've got a really big reform agenda for it as a program with a lot of moving parts, a lot of compliance activities in an environment where, yes, we're plateauing, got new government priorities and uh, policies to think about and build into this. Um, so very close consultation with partners at the moment about implementation, planning, timelines, the cost efficiency is really important discussion, uh, capacity building in the program, objectives, the program logic, branding, monitoring, evaluation. And we're going through a very uh, deliberate and methodical process with our posts at the moment about numbers and efficiencies and feedback from them. Uh, we'll be going back to the Minister uh, in the next couple of months once we get all this feedback and synthesised all the issues and challenges and um, uh, of course we're in very good contact with both her office and the parliamentary secretary's office about this program uh, really important part of the process thanks Julie thank you <laughs> <laughs> I, I, um, I'm going to give a few comments on the uh, evaluation and DFAT's response, and um, I guess not for the first time I find myself in a somewhat of a minority position. 
Uh, you've heard from Andrew on the presentation and you've heard from Gary basically endorsing and how they're taking forward those recommendations. So I'm going to give you a somewhat different perspective, which I hope will at least provoke discussion and some uh, reflection. So here at the Development Policy Centre, we have a lot of interest in the volunteer program. One of us used to be a volunteer. That's Ashley here. And I learned from this evaluation that Ashley was one of the 15% of returned volunteers who were not satisfied with her assignment. One of the quarter not satisfied with her host organisation. One of the 30% not satisfied with the support she received by her in-country manager. And one of the 44% whose job was not as per the position description. And one of the quarter whose volunteer assignment ended up being shorter than planned. So uh, she's part of a minority, but not a tiny minority. Which is perhaps why the blog she wrote last year on her experience with the volunteer program uh, went viral, at least by our modest standards. <laughs> <coughs> there's been very little frank public discussion of the volunteer program, and there's clearly untapped uh, demand for it. And uh, this is great to see this evaluation from that perspective. Unfortunately, the evaluation didn't deem it necessary to make any reference to Ashley's blog or the public discussion it generated. And I think, you know, we should think of blogs and online discussion fora as useful sources for ideas which can be tested by rigorous evaluations. I'll give you an example of that later. I'll also just mention we have a practical interest in the volunteer program because we are now a partner organisation. We're trying to help the U University of PNG Economics Department get a volunteer lecturer. So we both appreciate the volunteer program and we have some insight into it at the working level. One of the really good things about this evaluation is based on survey data. I think it's the first ODE evaluation that's actually gone out and collected survey data. And as you've heard, they undertook a survey of host organisations in three countries. Uh, the evaluation also draws on this uh, AusAid survey of returned volunteers. So let me start with a few comments on the data. So it's great they've got the data. I think it's a pity the evaluation didn't include more data from the two surveys. I'll give some examples of this later, but just to give a basic example, we don't know from the survey the average age of the volunteer. I mean, this sound, might sound like a small point, but the evaluation makes a big deal of the fact there's not much difference between AID and AVID volunteers, or AID and non-AID volunteers, including in terms of age. Well, but then we better know the difference in terms of age. Right? They do show us some age ranges, and I calculate, approximate from that, the average age of an AID is 28, and that of a non-AID, 45. Well, that is quite a large difference, actually. So there should have been more da basic data tables, and beyond that, we would like to request ODE to consider releasing the two surveys. All right, we'd also like to request DFAT to release the report on the returned volunteer survey. You know, you can't really extensively cite from a report and then not release the report itself. So uh, I'd like to ask Gary to consider that. I think it would also been good if the... Uh, it was it's an excellent survey, but the survey could have asked host organisations a few more questions. The, one of the interesting findings they have is that it costs $70,000 to... Uh, have a volunteer in the field. So you could have asked the host organisation whether you'd rather have the volunteer or the $70,000 in cash. <laughs> I think that would have been useful. The survey does ask whether a national could have done the job just as well as a volunteer, you know, the expat, the Australian volunteer. And in Vietnam and Cam Solomon Islands, hardly anyone says it could, but half of all Cambodian host organisations answer yes to that question. And that is worrying, because obviously you could hire a national for much less than $70,000. It seems to me there should be some investigation into what is happening in the Cambodia program. It is the uh, second largest uh, destination for Australian volunteers, and perhaps there are simply too many volunteers in Cambodia. But overall, I applaud the data collection exercise. My criticisms that follow around the interpretation of that data, and its, uh, as well as its limited use. So unfortunately, the lens used to examine the volunteer program is the familiar one of capacity development. 
I'm not sure why. Capacity development doesn't feature in the terms of reference. But after all, it is the holy grail of aid. So perhaps it's not, I shouldn't be so surprised. And I know from the AID website, as well as from our own experience in uh, trying to apply for a volunteer, that uh, the capacity development objective is taken very seriously by the volunteer program. So reflecting that, an entire chapter of the evaluation is devoted to the impact of volunteering on host organisation capacity development. And the bottom line of this chapter is that recommendation five you've heard about, which contends that DFAT should refocus the AVID program on developing the long-term capacity of host organisations. So I want to argue that this recommendation has no basis in the data. What the data actually show is that host organisations are much appreciated both for the work they do, right, the doing, and for the skills they transfer, right, which is a real capacity development contribution. But this is not enough for this evaluation. The capacity development function of Australian volunteers is judged to be relatively weak because relatively few organisations judge that their volunteers, and I quote, help our organisations better manage our own affairs or help us understand the experience of the people who use our service. Is it realistic to expect that volunteers would help with these things? In the great majority of cases, no. In fact, the, the evaluation finds that efforts to help in these areas, like to help the organisations better manage their own affairs, is negatively associated with satisfaction of host organisations. Perhaps host organisations don't, in general, want volunteers to help them manage their own affairs. They want them to do what they're skilled at or whatever specific task they've been assigned to, right? like teaching people how to cook. The other finding to me, which completely goes against the refocus on the capacity development objective, is what I think is the most interesting finding in the report. And that's what my PowerPoint presentation is about. So this is extracted from Table 10 of the report. And uh, it's my one slide, so I want to underline just how interesting and important this table is. You've got to appreciate I've been banging on for years about how we should make more use of inline positions in the um, aid program, mainly in line in reference to consultants, but could also be applied to volunteers. So I was both delighted and very surprised to find, in fact, this is the most commonly used modality for volunteers. More volunteers are in an inline position than any other type of uh, volunteer, right? counterpart, team mentor, or technical uh, advisor. Um, now, the evaluation finds that the inline volunteers are the least successful in capacity development. But I suspect this is true by definition, because it seems to me from the Appendix 2 that if you're in an inline position, you can't be scored highly for capacity development. What we really want to know, and what sadly the report fails to tell us, is whether people in an inline position are more appreciated by the host organisation and happier themselves. Right? What are the satisfaction ratings related to these different types of positions? Unfortunately, you know, the um, report, because of its focus on capacity development, this is the actual table right, from which I extracted the first two columns, it just focuses on how they do on capacity development. Right? It doesn't tell us, well, how do they do on overall satisfaction, uh, both for the host organisations? Uh, and themselves. Nevertheless, it's clear that this finding, I'll go back to it, has uh, major implications for the volunteer program, uh, including this point that there should be more priority on capacity development. It seems to me that refocusing on capacity development when 30% or 33% right, of your volunteers are in line position just doesn't make sense. Right? It might make sense for some positions, but it doesn't make sense for those 33% who are occupying in line roles. Another one, another implication is the counterpart model which underlies the volunteer program should be done away with. And uh, I was glad to hear that Gary made some comments along those lines, although it doesn't actually feature as a recommendation of the report. So we know from filling in the volunteer form that you have to list a counterpart. Uh, so the volunteers tr program is trying to fit, the, fit uh, into a model that doesn't really meet the reality. Right, so presumably all of these people had to indicate who their counterpart was, although only 9% ended up actually working 
uh, in that role, uh, primarily around a counterpart. Um, so I was glad to hear that Andrew said that, um, you know, that they discovered a lot of problems with the counterpart role because the way I read the report is that it says that having this expectation that the volunteer will play the role of a counterpart is, you know, and I quote, both feasible and desirable as the default. Right? Well, it doesn't make sense as a default if it's only 9% of uh, the volunteers who end up uh, playing that role. So uh, clearly uh, this information tells me we should not refocus on capacity development and uh, we should allow for a wide range of volunteer programs and volunteer approaches and it would be very useful and I was heartened to hear what Andrew said if the guidelines uh, reflected that flexibility and perhaps you could tick one of these boxes right at the start and not have to pretend that in fact you are working with the counterpart. You know, our, in our own example, we, uh, our counterparts already left the University of PNG. Right? So we can speak from experience that it just, it's not going to work. Uh, the other recommendations, I just want to go on to, although I disagree with this recommendation around capacity development, you know, how it's going to be uh, implemented, because that does worry me. The main uh, vehicle for this recommendation, it won't come as a surprise to anyone you know, who's been in the aid industry, the main recommendation is a plan. Right, we're going to have a three-year capacity development plan. And I was worried by uh, DFAT's response, whereas the evaluation at least says only selected organisations need to have this plan, DFAT's approach seems to be that everyone should have this uh, plan. And I would suggest that these three-year plans are, you know, frankly, the last thing we need. We know from the evaluation that half of the single assignment plans, right, the job description plans currently required, are not actually followed. So if a single assignment plan isn't really relevant, you know, what sort of relevance is a three-year plan uh, going to have? I'd much rather suggest there be a process for working out which assignments went well and continuing those assignments right, with follow-up volunteers. Right? In other words, build on success uh, rather than build on plans. So that's my major uh, sort of reservation with this report, is that focus on... is an argument that we should focus on capacity development and uh, do that through these plans. But I'll finish with a few uh, shorter points... Um, on a, um, a range of uh, things I, I, I picked up by reading the report. And one of the findings of the survey is that longer-term assignments are more likely to be successful. I, I couldn't find that quantified, and I think it would be good to quantify, you know, again, show length of assignment, satisfaction with assignment. But the only related information I could find was, that, again, the surprising revelation, the average volunteer assignment is only 6 to 12 months. And I was quite surprised by that, and um, I have nothing, you know in principle against short-term assignments, but given the finding of the evaluation, I would expect a recommendation to have longer-term assignments, and I'd be interested in DFAT's view uh, on that. Uh, another smaller comment, I was surprised that 54% of volunteers work for NGOs. I mean, I'm a big believer in uh, NGOs, but we do have to ask the question, is our volunteers best suited to working in NGOs, or are NGOs just the best organised and able to access volunteer uh, resources. I think that would be worth looking at. I also want to go back to the point I made at the start that almost one in three volunteers feel are not happy with the support they get from their in-country manager. Uh, that's very little explored in the evaluation and, and only reflected in this recommendation that there be more workshops and better networking. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I'm sure the three volunteer organisations all do a very good job and they've given us a lot of support uh, in PNG, but they do get let off very lightly. And in particular, there's no mention of the issue of staff turnover. We know that staff turnover, rapid staff turnover, is a huge problem for DFAT, and I suspect it's a problem for the aid sector more generally. 
It was certainly a problem for Ashley, and if she doesn't, well, it's already public, so I'll quote from her report, where she says that despite notification of the problems she was facing in her assignment, she received no intervention or advice from her country office on how to improve the situation. The inflexible nature of the program meant suggestions I made about volunteering part-time or for other NGOs was apparently not possible. It should be noted that during the time I was volunteering, Austrading was searching for a new country manager for Timor-Leste. We had a rotation of temporary managers in place during this time, which likely contributed to my concerns not being addressed. So, of course, there are always reasons for staff turnover, and, and you can't stop someone leaving. But if it is a systemic problem which undermines the effectiveness of the aid program, I think it's, uh, it's one that should have been looked at uh, into by this evaluation. And it does make me go back to the disconnect of the evaluation from that blog and the debate around that blog. As I said, we've raised good issues on the blog. We can't always claim you know, to be rigorous right, because we want to give uh, airing to anecdotal views. We want to stir up debate. But I do think it's a good source for evaluations, uh, for claims, and if those claims are found to be justified by rigorous evaluation, they should be reflected not only in the discussion but in the recommendations. Uh, the last issue I want to raise is around uh, AED versus AVID. Right? The, the report recommends we just have one volunteer program, and this um, you know, strikes me as sensible, but not, of not a complete recommendation. So one of the aims of AED is to give young Australians international experience. And I guess my question is, is that no longer an objective? Right? Will there be a quota for under-30s anymore? Right? Or will that objective be given up on? I was surprised that DFAT's response includes the desire to see more under-24s volunteering, right? not just in the late 20s, but people in the early 20s. And I wonder why uh, DFAT wants to do that, uh, especially if they do uh, want to develop capacity. Uh, although that's not something that would worry me. But anyway, I just think uh, this whole issue of the, the around age could be uh, developed more, and not just in the AAD versus uh, AVID context, but more in the context of which sort of volunteers do better. At one point, the evaluation does say that very experienced volunteers were much better at capacity development. And it'd be interesting to know whether uh, more, uh, these more experienced volunteers were generally better uh, as volunteers, not just on capacity development, but uh, generally of more use to their host organisations. And my guess would be, I know this could be a sensitive issue, but my guess would be they would be, right, because they've got more experience right, and they've got more expertise. But if they're willing to volunteer, you know, they probably don't have that huge ego, right, which some con very experienced uh, consultants have, which undermines the effectiveness sometimes of uh, very experienced consultants. Mm -hmm. So there may be a trade-off. On the one hand, you want the experience and the expertise of a seasoned volunteer. On the other hand, we want to give our young Australians the opportunity to live and work overseas. And we hope that that will in interest them in development and perhaps lead to a career in development, as it does seem to for uh, many of these volunteers. So there may be a trade-off here, which is somewhat brushed under the carpet by this simple recommendation to uh, merge uh, the two programs. Uh, so I'll end up here. Uh, to sum up, I think it's great you've gone out and collected the data. I encourage ODE to do more to ensure that the conclusions and recommendations reflect what the data actually reveal. And I think this is a common message from the two blogs that we also put out on the law and justice and the HIV AIDS uh, evaluation. Uh, but uh, at the same time, you've obviously contributed a lot to the debate, uh, including by... Uh, collecting this data, and I do hope you'll be willing to share it with us so that we can take forward uh, the analysis you've begun in this evaluation. Thank you.
Well, I think um, we've had three really good presentations and I imagine that's um, raised a few questions in people's minds and, you know, it'll be good to potentially uh, uh, um, hear from people who've been volunteers but also from others. For me, I have to say I'm delighted to find part of the um, Australian Government Aid Programme that focuses uh, more on civil society and working with NGOs than on working with government. So I wouldn't see that as a negative, but as a positive. So are there lots of questions? Please, we'll take a few at a time. If there aren't, I'm surprised. Come on. Um, <laughs> if there aren't, I'd like to defend Well, I think, <laughs> I think that's actually maybe a, a good idea then, Andrew, if you, if you want to respond to the points that Stephen raised. Then we'll really, I mean, discussion. Okay, but let's have a, let's have a really bit of gonna, I just want to touch minutes. on one point. There's obviously, there's a lot in this evaluation, far more than we can bring up. First of all, yes, we did read the blogs. Yes, they were good and they had a lot of permanent information. And yes, we had considered all those issues in doing the evaluation with other, in other and it didn't contradict anything that we'd already thought about or put in. So we felt it was, even if it wasn't a formal data source, it was a sort of a check on all that stuff. Um, the main thing I'd talk to is about this, dif this difference between, you know, should they be doing capacity development or not, which is one of the, the key points, I think, that was, that was really raised. Um, and as we said in the evaluation, yeah, it's not easy, and volunteers do say they want some more, some help around that. So I guess what we can agree on, perhaps, is there's a disconnect between the expectation of volunteers and the actuality when they arrive. Okay, I think that's what, where we differ, and it's not really my role, so I'll leave it to Gary to talk about what, what's the right thing to do. But you know, if there's a disconnection between, one option is to retreat from that and accept the status quo. Another is to name this as a disconnect and take steps to try and fix what you're actually trying to achieve with the program. Okay. So we felt, we didn't say that a volunteer could do capacity development in every role at every time. One of the tables you'll see in the report is we came up with a, a plan, dear, oh dear, a plan. <laughs> but we felt there were times when a volunteer just needed to be in any line position. Absolutely there are times when that's what a host organisation can deal with. There are times when they're doing for that organisation. But well, we'd like to think that over time an organisation would be helped to use a volunteer to help that volunteer then to do with them and to do more co-production and more capacity stuff. And that at some further point down the track with an organisation who's developing its capacity and making use of the volunteers, different types of volunteers with different skills either as mentors or consultants will be more useful to the organisation. And we felt that just having an organisation that's satisfied with getting a constant stream of volunteers and using them in an inline position time and time again was not in line with the capacity development objectives of the okay. program. Look, let's move on to some questions. Thanks, right at the back there. Um, mine's a little bit of a comment, but I do have some questions at the end. I'll ask you to speak up and not take too long so we can get around a few people. Uh, my name's Aaron. I was a volunteer in Cambodia about five years ago as an AA, and I continued as a VEDA. Um, and actually, just before this, um, I was talking with my former director, and he said he was a volunteer, I'm not sure, maybe 20 years ago now, in uh, rural India. And we reflected that this is really hard work, um, being a volunteer in a foreign country. Um, you often dropped out in the middle of nowhere. I was in rural Cambodia. Nobody else in the town could speak English. I had to learn a language. Um, worked. One of my colleagues could speak English well, another a little bit, 30 staff in the organisation. So it really takes time to get up to speed. 
And a lot of this is being about the workplace, but it's also about life in general. So there's many challenges, and I think the report notes that you know 15% of people were unhappy, um, and often this is because things weren't done right um, at the host organisations. But I think the large majority of people have just such amazing experiences, and the report says that 30% of people are now working in international development back in Australia. So this is amazing. Do you have a question? The final point is how long-lasting this is. My friend got married last weekend in Melbourne. People are flown in from Africa, Asia, all over the place. Um, like it really brings people together. So my question is that this is a point-in-time study. How do you take count of these things that happen over a longer period of time? These people stay connected, they move on to different jobs. Um, you mentioned the organisations they work into, the people that now work in UN, that work all around the world due to this thing. So this is the point in time. How do you actually um, capture all of these great things, all of these floating pieces of information okay. um, that continue over many, many years? Thanks. And actually, the volunteer program might be good for Qantas on that basis. Ashley, you had a question? <laughs> We're going to ca collect three questions and then get pass it back to the panel. Um, thanks, everyone. I think it's a really valuable to have this um, public discussion on, on the volunteer program. Um, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about assignment descriptions because um, you know it's something that Stephen mentioned. We're talking with a lot of inline positions. Uh, do we know how these are advertised? Because most designers appear to be advertised as capacity development positions, whether or not that's actually the intention of the host organisation, whether that's what the volunteer ends up doing, that, that it doesn't seem to be the case in, in a lot of positions. And, um, you know, um, Gary mentioned the expectations of volunteers, you know, sort of being built up and then going and sort of crashing out reality in country. In country. Um, you know, if it's seen that assignment descriptions not matching up to what was ever really even intended for the position, just to tick boxes to have a counterpart, to tick the capacity building boxes, would be contributed to this. And I didn't really see a lot in the evaluation that looked at, or that recommended perhaps revising how these job descriptions are advertised. Because as, as I think Andrew and Gary mentioned, they are competitive positions. You apply for them like you apply for a job. and. You know, should they be more reflective of what's actually expected in the country? Thanks, Ashley. One other question. Yeah. Hi, my name's Dion. I was actually an AD um, at the age of 21, so one of the younger ones outside of your bell curve. Um, but my question is, in terms of the, the countries that you focused on, so you focused on countries that had established AI programs. I just wanted to know why you didn't um, focus on one country that had a relatively new program, because that would, one, I believe, skew the data. Um, and I was actually at Ghana AAD in its second round. Um, and so I feel like you're not providing a wide source of data if you're only focusing on countries that would have established programs. Um, if you could just explain that, that would be fabulous. Okay, pass it back for some fairly quick comments and then we'll have another round of questions. Andrew, do you want to... First of all, to the gentleman, when in our literature review we said longitudinal research would be, is an undone bit of research that should be done, so I would agree with you. Uh, it's, yeah, we did a literature review on volunteer programs, we didn't find any. There is some. 
Oh, well, there you go. And I advised you of when you were doing literature. Which one's that? Uh, by Paul Giorgio, top and Paul Giorgio, on neoliberalism uh, and development volunteering. And oh, right, the book. Done over a three-year period yep. for research uh, from 2006 but, to Yeah, we did have a look at that. That was after we'd done the literature review. But yes, OK, well, there's that then. You'd like to talk to him and maybe I can help you out. <laughs> the second thing with the assignment descriptions, yes, the evaluation does talk about the problem of assignment descriptions not reflecting reality. And there's a few reasons for it. I'll do this quickly. One is the time between when it was written and the person arrives. No one can control that. But yes, there is evidence or suggestions that sometimes it's written for the sole purpose of getting a volunteer. And what do I have to say to get a volunteer rather than what I want to use it? That's why we made it fairly clear in the report that we feel, in line with recruitment processes generally, the volunteer should be recruited with a role, not just an assignment. Because if you're coming into an organisation with a role and you hit the ground, you're going to have a little bit more understanding of, OK, this assignment description doesn't mean anything, but now I know where I fit in the organisation and I can work there. Um, thirdly, about the three countries, why we choose the three countries. As you, the purpose of the evaluation was to enhance the effectiveness of AVID, and we wanted to look at places where we had a fairly large spread of numbers, so that when we went and talked to people, we knew we wouldn't talk to everyone, that we would get somewhat, a somewhat representative sample of people in those three countries. Logistically, we couldn't go everywhere, and every evaluation has to make a choice about what questions does it try to address, and where does it go to seek data. Uh, another evaluation could well do that, um, and I, there's no reason why we couldn't have done that. But it was just in terms of maximising the resources of the evaluation for the questions that were, that were there to be answered. That seemed like the more appropriate angle for us. Um, look, I might just make a general comment that sort of cuts across uh, probably two of the three. Really is that, I just want to re-emphasise that issue about the evaluation and learning framework around this, is that in many ways this will um, provide some of the answers across the board because we actually need to get sort of a feedback loop or learning loops back into the whole process and how we do that. I mean, I think, you know, Stephen suggests that we pick up on the model that type of activity. It's a really important part of that, that process. I, I guess when we embarked on the issue, on the evaluation, I don't know exactly the circumstances around that through my history, but I guess you know, making sure we have the elements in there that, that build a fuller picture of what is happening around the, the volunteer program, and in doing that, to make sure that we deal with issues like expectations and what are we trying to achieve through assignments and projects that come up through the, through the programs. So, you know, if you build that better picture, you get better feedback loop about the expectations and the outcomes you're trying to achieve. So I think, so, so, so it all feeds into each into itself. I mean, you know, I, I can just draw on other experiences, you know, having with other programs. For us, that's starting to happen with the ANCP program since we introduced the monitoring evaluation learning framework. We've got all this data now at our fingertips and ways of addressing different elements of the program and understanding what it's about, including, you know, if we take it through the volunteer experience, getting feedback from volunteers about a good experience for them, what they're trying to achieve. And I, I have to say, I picked up on this issue of expectations very early when I first did a pre-departure briefing when... Uh, you know, I know from having worked in remote indigenous environments, for example, you go there thinking you're going to solve everything. Well, it doesn't happen like that in reality. And the messaging around that's really important, and the agreement you have around what you're going to achieve is really important. Um, just, you know, let's get the feedback loops right around this, around the evaluation framework. I, don't, I could just make a general comment about the issue, third issue about the um, Ghana, or, you know, the smaller country experience. Uh, you know, from a 
a DFAT or OSAI perspective on at the time, I mentioned there would have been a sort of cost benefit around that as well. You know, let's go to three countries where there's a lot of volunteers so we can actually get them maximise the impact through a set budget. So I think there's a very practical issue there. But if we have a better monitoring evaluation framework, it'll pick up the little stuff down. Of course, the, the return volunteer survey did cover volunteers from the yeah. entire. <laughs> yeah, okay. I see that it was data <laughs> if you're gathering something yeah. that's established because the procedures and the policies involved in those countries in Cambodia especially are a lot deeper and a lot more intricate than the ones that were in Ghana. Um, and that's just a comment on a question, sorry. No, that's fine, good. Um, Stephen, did you want to add anything to um, that? Well, I just wanted to respond to Andrew, actually, that, um, you know, I, I mean, I don't want to be precious, but, uh, you know, to say, well, we read the blogs and it doesn't contradict anything we said, it does contradict this main point. A major chunk of that discussion in the blog was to argue that the at volunteer program should de-emphasise capacity development. Right? That was a major thrust of that whole discussion. And here we have a recommendation that it should be refocused on capacity development without any discussion that perhaps other people might think differently. And perhaps the data actually shows a different argument. So I think there's no point hiding that that's a kind of fundamental uh, disagreement. And can I just mention on the role, I think it's good there's a recommendation that be given a role. It's unfortunate that it's couched within this thing that it's a role to support the long-term plan, right? It's a role to support long-term capacity building. Perhaps it's a role to be in line, right? Which has very little to do with uh, capacity building, at least as conventionally thought of. Um, I think, uh, uh, Gary, I think also Stephen's request to release some more of the data, but I'm fair to dump it on you now, but I guess we'd all be interested in, in, in seeing that too. Now, there were lots of hands up at one point. Um, Robin? Yes, three quick questions. So this whole <laughs> process is about moving away from kind of ANCP-style support for NGOs sending volunteers and moving toward essentially a managed centralised program. There are good reasons for that. But what about those NGOs who still send volunteers? Will they receive support uh, from the government? Um, or, or is that form of activity regarded as, as what it is? When you say these NGOs, are you, are you referring to NGOs like CARE or, or ABI? They tend to be smaller, like partners. Oh, okay. But okay. Yeah. okay. Second question, I really want to underline Stephen's question about the younger volunteers. Um, I've got history on AA. I used to think it was a stupid idea and I became a convert. Uh, in fact, I think it supported bluntly. I think the recommendation around squashing AA is, was, was a bit facile and unwise. Uh, but it was set up precisely because the average age of volunteers back 10, 15 years ago was, was in the high 40s, mid 50s, and you know, it appears we may still be in that situation if we eliminate AA without some other way of ensuring that young volunteers. There's a whole slew of good reasons for having young volunteers which I want to go into. Final question around uh, so Stephen asked the question would a host organisation rather have a bunch of cash or a volunteer? There's, there's a further question. Would, would the host organisation uh, like to have a bit of cash as well as a volunteer? And in many cases, we can really care about making a place to be effective and need some additional resources around that volunteer. And that doesn't seem to be part of the organisations. Thanks. Um, my name is Paul, and I have a question for Andrew. I'm just wondering in your evaluation if you if you ask any questions of the uh, return volunteers or the host organisations about um, language abilities and whether the volunteers, some of them had the, a language ability for the country they were going to or whether they thought they needed some training that would help. Thank you. Now, there were some other questions. Yes, in the middle. Uh, just a question to um, understand what's basically 
maybe our AA route program. But I wondered if the consultants ever considered looking at small organisations who send volunteers, such as Arms Australia, and what sort of, um, how, how they do that, and whether they consider that. Secondly, between ABI and AWED volunteers, um, I wondered if there was a question to the host organisations and which, which they preferred, and if so, was it because of the cost? That's because um, AAD come with a bigger um, first aid kit, which means that the host government don't pay so much for them. So was, that, was there something that they looked at that? And the ABI, you know, the host community has to contribute Thanks very much. Well, we've got five questions there, so why don't I come back to the panel and... Um... Um, look, um, sorry, just, just want to Robin, pick up your question about sort of the command and control type <laughs> model. I, um, uh, you know, I think, I think it's really important going forward, if we are about the focus on outcomes, that we are flexible in the program. I don't, I don't see, suddenly see that... I'm just trying to take, I'm just trying to understand your question really clearly here. Is this is this about saying um, your question is about saying that we need something beyond the three partners now, or are you saying this is the actual assignments it's going to endure? The core partners are now the best of the contractors. Yeah, that's right, and that's the given at the moment. Yeah. Is the government going to see a role that it's sending volunteers in a way that is less integrated with the country's strategies and so forth? Yeah. Um, look, I guess. Um, you know, the way we frame the management response so far is that uh, it's framed within the current arrangements. So, you know, here are our three main partners, I made that point very clearly presentation. Uh, we were very cognizant and I'm very aware of some of the decision making around why we don't have other providers, you know, about making sure that we don't fragment the program too much, you know, and introduce other sort of uh, costs in the program. Uh, having said that, I would have thought, though, within the three-partner arrangement, there are possibilities for other partnerships or working out flexible arrangements within that. And I think, you know, there are the possibilities about making sure that we're a very responsive program. Um, I think, you know, I think that sort of captures it to me at the moment. This, this program is really uh, trying to move it from a supply-based approach to more of a demand supply, as I mentioned, trying to get a push-pull effect in it. And to do that, we do need to be more flexible. We need to be more, I guess, uh, in tune with what, you know, posts are saying, what partner organisations are saying, you know, host organisations are saying, to, to get that right uh, response around flexibility. And in, in a way that also um, is what will drive how we deal with, you know, age ranges in this as well. So just coming to your second question, that... Uh, once we get the you know clarity around the objectives, the outcomes we're trying to achieve, what what are we trying to achieve? Then it will become clearer who we're going to target around particular ages, for example, and experience and you know, capacity building and so on. Um, so, Gary, at the moment, there is no consideration being given to a um, having a cohort of youth within the other. Oh no 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 no! Um, sorry, I don't want to. Absolutely, we want to make sure there are opportunities there for young people, and I've said that very clearly to you know, a number of the pre-departure groups. And is there a target? There isn't a target at the moment. What we're doing at the moment is, as I mentioned, is we're consulting very closely with the three partners about what a youth cohort might look like going forward. 
So we don't want to shut that down. We recognise there's been some fantastic outcomes from that, and the feedback's been you know, really good. Over. There's some weird, wonderful things happening under, under AM, uh, but um, really it's about making sure going forward we don't disadvantage young people at all, that we find opportunities that are really good and meaningful for them, um, and that there will be a group of young people in the AVID program. There's no question about that. Yeah, just quickly, um, squashing AHAD, as you said, agreed on. There was no suggestion that that didn't mean you wouldn't, couldn't have a cohort of youth. It was just they were aiming at very similar things, but there was less. It meant having set different con providers have contracts for different programs. It creates less flexibility for in country to be able to source a volunteer when they needed to have a, a different set of programs with different rules and all that sort of thing. So we thought that was an efficiency question. Um, and, and a couple of the questions refer to other programs. Like all I can say is, you know, the, our terms of reference, we were looking at Abbott as a program and we weren't comparing it to any other programs. And that's not, so we don't really have anything. I can't really say much about that. And it wasn't a review of the core partners either. It was a review of the program. How does this program work? How can we get the best out of this particular program? Uh, your, your question there about the language, yes, it's an interesting one. I think we did about 45 interviews with host organisations. There were two where we needed an interpreter. Every other kind time when we were talking to the local person, they were proficient enough in English for us to do an interview. Uh, we talked to the volunteers about the language issue, and they all raised it as a, a, a barrier and an obstacle, but not insurmountable, and not something that prevented them from doing meaningful work. But as, as this gentleman up there mentioned, I mentioned many of the volunteers' experience, people routinely talked about a fairly long acculturation period of even up to two to three months of getting familiar with people, people accepting them. So it was not just language, but culture and a range of things. But I guess the big picture is, um, yes, it created difficulties, but it wasn't something they didn't feel they could overcome. Sorry, can I just come back? The third bit of your question about the, um, about the cash from the volunteer. Or both. Yeah, or both. I think that's a great suggestion. And I, um, you know, you know, it's interesting, I mean, I'd be keen to actually explore that in more detail because uh, we all know, those of us who involve delivering programs on the ground, that you need uh, flexible resources to make things happen. I, I, I can understand that. If we're clear about what the outcomes we're trying to achieve in a particular environment, you want to be able to deploy resources, both human and you know, capital in whatever way, to make that happen. I'd be interested in exploring that in an innovation sense and having a discussion about it. I, think that's, I don't think that's you know, part of the management response at this point, but I think it is a way of looking at the way we do business. Thank you all. I think it's a great suggestion. And there was a final question about the cost differential. Did, have we covered um, between Was it between AADS and, uh, and uh, other? Is there a cost? Cost difference. Yeah, is there a cost difference between AAD and, and was that mm. part of um, organisations' response to the different programs? Yeah, look, um, from memory with the interviews, there, the issue did raise itself in some situations where um, there was, in some in country, like there was the different core partners and the different streams. And what I understand is there are different arrangements regarding whether or not the host organisation makes a contribution to the assignment. Uh, I understand many times that contribution is in kind uh, and it's a negotiated process as to what's feasible in this particular situation. 
plus the different way the different core partners work. And as I, I guess, as I said, because we were looking at this at a program level, we weren't getting into the, the differences between the different core partners as, as, a, as a strong lens that we looked at the evaluation. But the skills levels and the experience were the Yeah, many of them, uh, when they found a volunteer, there was, there was a bit of, you know, who did they find? Did they know about ABI or did they know about Austrian? And there's a bit of chance and serendipity about that, who they came in contact with, because under the current system, you would only ever get an A out if you came in contact with Austrian and went through that process, whereas if you came in contact with ABI or Red Cross, because of the contracting arrangements and the separate programs, they would have only got one type of volunteer. You know, and we, I mean, as I said, we looked at this a lot in terms of who are the better volunteers. We couldn't find any evidence in, in, that there's a distinction between whether they were sent with the AAD program or the AVID program. The thing was <coughs> the expertise of that individual volunteer was really key and how long they were going for. And the different programs had different rules about lengths of assignments and then there's an age cap on one and not the other. And we felt that these sort of regulatory arrangements were not really supporting the flexibility of making the best use of AVIDs and we're only talking about evidence in this evaluation in country. Um, okay, thank you. Question here. Um, I uh, heard from you, Gary, on 7th of January, where you said that uh, DFAT were taking into consideration the lessons learned from the pilot volunteer fund. Can you tell me what lessons have been learned from the pilot volunteer fund? Uh, and I'm a little bit concerned about cash and volunteers. And a number of the partners of Palms Australia have told me that uh, they specifically want a Palms Australia volunteer because they don't come with cash like an ABI volunteer. Uh, that then puts the volunteer in a position of power over the staff and uh, gives them an over-powerful uh, say on how uh, the program will be run. Now, you just got to be careful how you attach it. Um, there are some lessons that we learn when we're in a field like that. But there's more particularly interesting at the moment what lessons you learned from the biopolitical uh, fund. Thank you. Well, we'll just get, yeah. grab a few more questions. <coughs> there was one, one back? No? One back up there. Yeah. I just had a question about the focus on host organisations. Um, Gary was talking about the volunteer program that needs to align with the government's um, priorities. Uh, and talking about economic diplomacy and a bigger focus on the private sector. How do you see that affecting the makeup of host organisations that, that, that the program currently engages with? And will this mean that uh, the volunteer program ends up looking like more like Australian business volunteers? Or what's, what does the makeup look like in the future? And we'll have one uh, question here. Thank you. My name's Peter. I'm from an agency, a government agency that hosts quite a few AADs across the world. We're interested in looking at supporting this more strategically. I guess our experience, and I've got a colleague here who was an AAD in, in, in an ACR project, um, is that uh, it's a complex conjunction of people and institutions and luck, and it's, it's very hard to categorise you know, wh which one's going to be most effective. What we've found is very effective placements, but they're highly contextual. And there have been occasions when AADs have been in a placement where it's, it's not working and they're really comfortable to end it at the time period when they were of their placement, but there have been a number of occasions where six months in they're really aware of what they want to do and how they can contribute and there are partnerships in the country 
we feel there's an opportunity to have some flexibility at that point in time where we as an organisation can also come investing with small amounts of cash through a partnership with the partner agency, jointly agreed, which would then allow them to say, we now have a 12-month window because we know what we can do. We think there's perhaps a missed opportunity to capitalise on those really successful placements like that, so we're really keen to sort of explore that flexibility. So building on success, and I'm going to take the Chair's prerogative to ask my question, which is that, you know, as you've, um, you've talked about, you know, the importance of impact to this government and the last government, therefore aligning the program much more strongly with country programs um, and, and, and really focusing on outcomes. My problem with that is actually, you know, country programs um, often don't exist. And then when, when the government changes, the country program is in limbo, sometimes for years. And, and then there's a sudden change in the country program. So, you know, one of the reasons we value ANCP is it's not tied to country programs. That means we can invest for 10 years in an area that is valuable to us. You really want to see impact. You know, I think there is some serendipity. It's about building on what works. And I think aligning it to country programs is going to create a whole other different set of, of issues and problems, and I'd really like your response. But maybe I'll just open up to answer the, the deal with those questions. Roger. <clears throat> Good to meet you. <laughs> um, uh, look, um, I, I want to talk in the very broad, if that's all right, because uh, you know I don't want to unpick particular arrangements or whatever. But I think a key lesson in the whole experience about the, the pilot program, as I understand it, and you know I've been involved right at the outset, is that um, in terms of the uh, sort of global programs we're running, it's really important that we get scale around that, that we reduce transaction costs in that. Um, there, are, there are benefits in having a small number of providers who are able to do a lot of stuff, uh, to put very neatly. And that doesn't, that notwithstanding their capacity to actually do things on a flexible basis, and that, that's still possible within that framework. So there are there are lessons around that that uh, we've taken out of the pilot program. Um, clearly, the evaluation has affirmed that in the sense uh, affirmed another issue around that the issue of branding and recognition overseas that. The Australian government would benefit from having a single brand, a single approach. Again, that wouldn't preclude being flexible in particular environments and with particular projects in there. So, so there are a range of lessons in there. Um, there's, there's more that go to, um, you know, standards and applying that a whole, around a whole range of different programs in that. I'm not commenting in particular about standards in each of the programs specifically, but there is an issue around that and a lesson learned around that. Uh, there's issues of safety and security that we have to make sure apply across the board. Um, so there are broad lessons, yes, absolutely, in, in what happened through uh, funding a separate small pilot program. On the uh, issue of the private sector, a lot of work's got to be done in this space. I'm, uh, I'm a very strong supporter of, of using more private sector partners. I know that in many uh, corporations there's an, a willingness and um, 
uh, interest in using their you know management programs in a, uh, a development context, and I think there are opportunities that we miss out on as a result in partnering with private sector organisations. That's in terms of Australian organisations. I think there are there are other opportunities that require a lot deeper exploration in a country context as well. So a few things around it. And the other element around the private sector is, of course, targeting volunteers towards uh, structural institutional reform so that we might be contributing to, uh, you know, government organisations inside a country which is trying to, you know, improve financial systems or whatever. So there's all sorts of elements of that we've got to flesh out. Um, <clears throat> the issue about... Well, there was the AC, ACR issue as well. Can you... Is there going to be... Fle- sorry. Sorry. The, the, <laughs> the flexibility to extend a volunteer... Yeah, I haven't talked about that. was the only one yeah. that I thought yeah. the questions that seemed relevant to me. In the report, we did... No, relevant to my role here. <laughs> <laughs> mainly yeah. tricky questions no, no, for no, Gary. Thanks for reminding me. But with the flexibility... We did raise it. It is in the report. There's a couple of paragraphs in there, if you can find them, around this flexibility issue and around the uh, extending... Um, volunteer assignments and we did raise it again the word flexibility has come up a lot today as an issue for flexibility some in-country managers have a set quota of volunteers that they have to do each each year with a set number of volunteer months that they've got budgeted for that year and we talked about in the report there's a bit of a discussion about how that reduces the flexibility to extend promising assignments as you point out <coughs> seemed to us to, to be a good idea as well along the lines of perhaps some stuff that um, Sim was talking about in terms of capitalising on success. So, yeah, he's a little bit talked about in the report about that need to find some mechanism for that. Yeah, I'll just add, I mean, that's, there is this uh, finding in the report that um, you need to have more flexibility, and it's, I guess it goes, it underlines my concern that uh, it doesn't make into the recommendations. So there's such this uh, fixation with capacity development that it actually crowds out a lot of the other interesting findings that are in the report don't make it into these don't make it into the list of recommendations. The other thing I just want to comment on is the issue about host organisations, NGOs. Uh, I mean, I think it's good that the volunteer programs focus outside of government and good on the NGOs for getting such a large chunk of it. I, I, it just would be interesting to explore, like you mentioned, private sector government. I mean, I would think in universities that we could make a lot more use mm-hmm. of uh, volunteer organisations as well. And I think your point about alignment is well made, Julia. And I also just caution Gary on the you're very busy uh, DFAT staff out of post. They're going to try to uh, try to run the volunteer program. Yeah, is, is so autonomy has virtue. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I recognise it. Yeah. Uh, just want to comment um, first on the flexibility issue. I think uh, you know goes to a couple of things around. Um, I was talking about earlier. One is multi-year funding and uh, allowing partners, um, you know, a greater period of time to actually work through what's required around delivering something. And, you know, at the moment we tend to sort of be fixated around sort of 12 months, 18 months and whatever, even less. And clearly there are opportunities and projects or building activity where something might be on that will work more effectively. And it's not beyond us to work that out. You know, it's, it's not beyond us to work out multi-year funding. It is possible. We can do that. We know that. So that gives people some of the timelines required and using budgets to be able to work things flexibly. Um, the issue about aligning with country programs is a point where I think, I think one of the issues, one of the uh, very helpful things that may come out of the performance benchmarking exercise is that we'll set a series of benchmarks that work right across you know, the whole eight program. And that may work in favour of 
programs that are about trying to achieve those benchmarks. So, you know, yes, you might want to get in line with some of those benchmarks. That might be not necessarily aligned with country programs. So, <coughs> you can take it both ways on that. I recognise the limitations around some of the country programs, particularly where government changes and you, where are we heading here right now? And yet, I've got this long term proposition that's much more sensible. And it happens to be a, a benchmark around you know, empowering women in communities throughout PNG. Well, you know, that, that lasts beyond any particular country priorities. It's a benchmark that might be, you know, looking for the long term. So, a couple of ways of taking that. Right? Okay, good. Well, we're now standing between you and a nice cup of tea or coffee. <laughs> so, please join me in thanking our panel. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.